That's it? Yeah. Okay. Hi. What? Who's everyone? Everyone out in the world. You know, this is really, uh, uh, this is amazing. You see those people listed over there? I mean, you don't know. The people on that list are someplace in the world. They are, none of them is in this room. So everybody who joins the Sheyur gets a byline. So for some people, that's worth it right there. <laughs> and then in the recording, they also uh, get their byline forever. So that um, I think that, I think it's really, it's the future. It's amazing. I don't know if it will be Web Yeshiva, but it might be something else, but it's going to happen. There's hardly any reason to learn any other way. It's true, as I always say, the teachers can't throw chalk at their students. <laughs> but I think with a little effort, the technology guys will figure out a way to solve that problem as well. I see you're a technological lady. Um, I'd like to thank the Americans and Canadians for making this evening possible. And I know that the Americans and Canadians, the organization, has been in Eretz Yisrael and Yerushalayim for a long time. I remember some of the time I came on Aliyah. I'd rather not tell you when that was. Uh, when they used to give people advice on which uh, refrigerators to buy and which stoves to buy. And then I think the clientele got a lot uh, smarter and their needs are more subtle. And so I'm happy that the Americans and Canadians are interested in the kind of programming that we might be able to help them with or help each other. Right? They help us and we help them. So we're thankful to the Americans and Canadians for what they have made possible this evening. Um, is there anything else I have to say as an introduction? <laughs> I keep getting people just keep telling me to do things, assuming that I would either not remember or not be interested, which is probably. Alan Gold, oh, look at this. Hanukkah Sameach. Al Alan's in Chicago. Sorry. No, oh. Food. Any food for us? Any food for us? Yeah, ask your wife. Wait, I'm wait. sure she can take care he's of it. He's on the line. Alan's talking. Where is he talking? Say something. You see, you could also talk. You don't have to just do this. You can talk. Like if you're annoyed with the teacher, so you could tell him that you're annoyed with the teacher. Alan, say something. Oh, there it is. That's me. I mean, really, Yehoshua is doing this. I'm, you know, I'm just sort of standing here. But if I was, if I was teaching at home, I would be doing that, sitting there. I'm just standing here because it looks better. But the teacher sits in front of the computer and he talks to his students, especially the ones who want to talk to him. Sometimes there are very few in that category. But here is... Is a good thing? Who? Now on. It's Alan. It's Alan. Alan. This is Alan from Chicago. Say hello to Alan. <laughs> Remember the Ed Sullivan show? Ah, Alan. You're going to sing and dance for us now? Thank you. No, no. He's in Skokie. Isn't that amazing? It's like, really, there are students all over the world in this list. It's amazing. Yeah, Howard Feiner, he's in uh, San Francisco, right? San Francisco? Who knows Howard? Where's Menucha? She knows everything. <laughs> What? Adam Cohen's in Toronto. And Adam Cohen's in Toronto. Don't know what he's 
In fact, we don't allow two people in a class in the same city. <laughs> and Joel is in uh, near Gdansk. You remember Gdansk? That was, you know, where they had that Polish little uprising. What? Alessandro is in Brazil. Who's in Brazil? Alessandro. Alessandro is in Brazil. Alessandro is in Brazil. You know, Brazil is a very big country. Wait a second. Yeah. Now, that's one third of the screen. Two thirds. Of, two thirds of the screen is the text that we're going to be learning together. So it's a little overkill, because you have the text in your hand, and you have the text on the screen. Well, we have some t- chats here. There you go. Oh. Wichita, Kansas. Wichita, yeah, Wichita, Kansas. Adam Cohen, the shout-out. He's in Toronto, and Alessandro is in... Where is he in? Brazil, like I say, it's a big country. You have to go someplace in Brazil. You can't just go to Brazil. So he, goes, he comes from that place over there. You can write to your AAA club, and they'll give you a trip ditch to Brazil. Ah, Sherry Manning is in Los Angeles, that's right. It's really, it's really uh, quite remarkable. It's really quite remarkable, and it's good. That's how it should be. You know, Jews should be learning Torah together. They shouldn't be, just feel that they're disjointed and separate. And uh, until they all come to Eretz Yisrael, it's nice that there's a medium that can get them together around learning, around learning Torah. I mean, we could like make uh, instead we could do comedy evenings, but it seems to me that the future of the Jewish people may be more closely tied to Torah study than to comedy evenings. Even though we've proven we Jews and proven that we're pretty good at comedy as well. Okay, so now you see when I teach, everybody sees this text. Now, if I give them the text in advance, which I should do, but which I'm awful uh, derelict in doing, like I don't get it, so they can print it out. You know print? You just hit print, (laughs) and it comes coughing out of your printer. And then if you like to look at hard copy, like if you're over 40 years old, and you still like to look at hard copy, so you look at the hard copy. But on the shear, when the shear is given, the text is always up there, and I have the opportunity of highlighting the text, which Yoshua, if I let Yoshua do this, he's going to just highlight all the time. So highlight something. Here, here we go. You see... You see, that's called highlighting. You choose a color, and you highlight, just like with those highlighters that they sell in the store. Now, the trick here is that if your eyes are open and you're looking at the screen, you really can't lose the place. You know how many times you, you know, go to a shear and they're teaching something, and all of a sudden you find you don't know the place? And that is really a terrible question. You know, who wants to raise his head and say to the teacher, where's the place? That's really, oh, it's beyond terrible. So here, the problem doesn't exist because the place is always there. Of course, I watch, I like to highlight a lot because that keeps me awake. I keep highlighting. And then uh, the whole thing is highlighted, so then nobody can find the place anymore. So I have to erase the highlighting, which is also possible, and re-highlight. You can re-highlight a different color the second time around, or you can underline, or you can put boxes around it. I mean, this is really the 22nd century, minimally. It's frightening. It's absolutely frightening. You can't lose the place. You can't lose the idea of what's more important, what's less important. It's really something, you know, that, that the Gemara, I teach Gemara in the Web Yeshiva often, and also other things. Some things are more subversive, but Gemara is not subversive. And you know, Gemara is printed, like Jews knew that this would make everybody else miserable, so it's printed like one r- long run-on sentence. Right? There's no way to know where anything starts or where anything ends. So that you have to be 
like on a certain level of competence just to read correctly. There's no way to... So the teacher is able to help the students with that. And that's a big thing. That's a big thing. Also, um, let's say I have some other text. Like I'm teaching the Gemara, I'm teaching Rav Nachman, right? And I want to compare it to the words of a Dylan song. Because you know, Dylan and Bratzlov are like very similar. They think about similar questions. So I have this other Dylan song, the words of Dylan song, like behind the Rav Nachman text. And when the right time comes, I give a click. Everything is done by click in this world. And out comes the Dylan text. Now, if I'm really clever, I could put the Dylan text into the Rav Nachman text. You know, and that would really be, you know, that's out of sight. But since uh, if you're under the age of 65, you might not know who Dylan was. So it doesn't matter because everybody thinks it's another great Jew. So, you know, it would be better if people did know who Dylan was or is. I mean, he's still, I saw recently that he's still doing it, so I felt good. We're the same age, Dylan and I. Not similarly talented, but the same age. I always wondered how it could be that somebody who was always high on drugs could have learned so many words in English. I, I didn't understand that. He, he knew a lot of words. He knows, I guess, a lot of words. Okay, so we're up to Rav Nachman and Bratzlov. That's it? We don't have another text, right, Joshua? If you want one, I'll bring one up. No. Bob Dylan? Bring Bob Dylan. Yeah, but it's a little too, you'll have to find it. It'll take too long. Okay, I'm starting. I'd like to talk about, first I'd like to talk about Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman Bratzlov has been rejuvenated um, in recent years. In recent years, many, many people have joined Bratzlov in one way or the other. You know, some of them go all the way, like, like Shabbos to Shabbos, and some of them go part of the way, like Shabbos. And then someday they go back to their other lives. But there's no doubt that there are more young people today interested in Brasil Hasidim for some Hasidut for some reason or another than there were, say, when I was growing up, when they were a rare kind of specimen. And it was very hard to find a community of Brasil Hasidim. Just by accident, I grew up in Brighton Beach which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn, which is part of New York, which is part of America. So I agree, in Brighton Beach, there was actually a minion of Brasil Hasidim. All of those people in the minion now live in Harnov. So there are no more Brasilers in Brooklyn. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Small world. So I also davened there, but in Brooklyn, many, many years ago. So the Bratzel Hasidim have, have a stage of comeback somehow. Uh, people are interested in what Bratzlov has to offer. Now what do they offer? Well, different people take it in different ways. The first thing that Bratzlov has to offer is a, a Rebbe who's not amongst the living. Now, this may be seen by some of you as a disadvantage, but that's not the case. Imagine you never have to wait online. <laughs> the Rebbe is, is with you. I mean, this is, a, this, is a tremendous, this is a tremendous advantage, apparently. It's not, some, you know, it's not my thing, but I imagine that you know, to have a Rebbe who is always there is, is something of an advantage. The second thing about Bratzlov, which I find a little bit more compelling, are the writings of Rav Nachman of Bratzlov. Rav Nachman, Rav Nachman used to speak. He would speak on Shabbatot and on uh, Rosh Hashanah, of course, and Yamim Tovim, and sometimes a Cholomoid. 
Sukkot and Pesach. And he would speak extemporaneously, which doesn't mean that he didn't prepare. He just got up and he spoke. And sometimes the ideas that he said are hard to connect one to the other. But if you work at it, you can. The great blessing uh, for Rav Nachman Braslav was that he had a Talmud, Rav Nossam, who had perfect recall. He would listen to the Rebbe talking on Shabbos, and then after Shabbos, I don't know when, after Motzei Shabbos or Sunday, he would write what Rav Nachman said, word for word for word. There are people like that. Rav Nossam was an extraordinary Talmud Chacham who um, was entirely devoted to his Rebbe and to his Rebbe's Torah. So everything that was written by Rav Nachman, that was written by Rav Nachman, was really written by Rav Nossam. But Rav Nachman reviewed it and edited it, so it's reasonable to say that the book called Likute Maharan, which came out in two sections, the first section called One, and the second section is called Two. And so that's how you reference the Likute Maharan. It's either in One or Two. At some point, they decided to print and bind the two books together, and that's what we call today Likute Maharan. There are many other books that contain Torah of Rav Nachman, aphorisms, uh, ideas, um, and, and, and the like, which were written by his Talmidim. They represent his thinking, his words, but they weren't as formally created as the Likuti Maharan was created by Rav Nosson, uh, the Talmud of uh, Rav Nachman. Rav Nossam ultimately wrote a very interesting commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. He took topics in the Shulchan Aruch and he braslavized them. Then he used the ideas of his Rebbe, Rav Nachman, to explain halachot. And he writes very clearly, very interesting, very, very well. He published this work in, it's published today in nine or ten volumes. Just to give you an idea, nine or ten volumes, no pictures and no maps. Just words. So Rav Nassim had this capacity to reconstruct his Rebbe's ideas within the context, within the context of the Shulchan Aruch. It's a very interesting book. Recently, the Braslavers, you know, it's like very popular today. They put out a quasi-mikraot gedolot. It's actually mikraot ktanot. It just has the Chumash, Rashi, and those portions of the Likutei Halachot. Likutei Halachot, remember, were written by Rav Nosson, right? The Talmud. The portions of the Likutei Halachot that explain relevant parts of the, of the Chumash. Uh, recently, I saw that they started doing that with Rav Kook, right? The first volume, Breshis, came out where they collect things that Rav Kook said and published that are related to the Parshat HaShavua, right? So Breshis came out, and since we're not finished with Breshis yet this year, maybe we'll get another volume when Shmos uh, comes around. So Rav Nachman... Rav Nachman, besides the Torah that he said, the things that you can learn from Rav Nachman, was also an interesting character. He, 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 felt, he felt that at the time he was the son of the grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. The son of the grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. That means from the Baal Shem Tov till Rav Nachman, one, two, three generations. Right? Three generations. He felt that at that time, already, Hasidut had lost some of its edge. Now, since there were so many people who had taken up Hasidut, he felt that not all the Rebbeim, not all of those who called themselves Rebbeim, were really appropriate and, and, and students of the Baal Shem Tov. Whereas he felt that he, 
Rav Nachman was an appropriate Rebbe and an appropriate student of the Baal Shem Tov. Interestingly enough, interestingly enough, he never was able to pass this message on to large numbers of people. And I dare say, without knowing the, the facts, that Bratzlav today is much, much larger than Bratzlav was during Rav Nachman's lifetime. He was in, he was in Uman, and he was in Bratzlav, and they were also always very small, very small communities. So I'll tell you a story about Rav Nachman of Bratzlav, and then we'll start. A story that I heard when I started learning Rav Nachman of uh, Rav Nachman. My first teacher in learning Rav Nachman was uh, Chaim Shaul Porush, who was the head of the Hasidut division in Mosada Rav Kuk, whatever that might mean. But he was a Litvak who became a Braslava. So you know when a Litvak becomes something, they actually read the words. You know, because that's how they were trained. They think that you're supposed to read the words. So uh, the Hasidim don't read the words. It's not, it's not important to them. They know they're right. So what, what, what are they going to get for reading the words? But the Litvak, who becomes a Chassid, he reads the words. So he taught us. He taught us, the ones who came to his class, he taught us how to read, how to read the words. And I've been reading the words ever, ever since. I wanted to tell you a story about uh, Rav Nachman of Bratzel, but I forgot what story it was. That, so he told us a story. He, Chaim Shol Porush, who was a well-known Yushalmi personality, who always lived in the world of the two worlds of, of regular learning, Lithuanian yeshivas, and Hasidic learning. Right? He was, that's the way he was. So he said that, he said that Rav Nachman, when he came to Uman, Uman, for those of you who've been there, is like a small town. And uh, when Rav Nachman came there, it was mostly non-Jews. I mean, there were very few Jews who lived in Uman. And there was a Jewish doctor in Uman. Now, in those days, there were two things that you have to understand about doctors. In Poland, if you wanted to become a doctor, you had to go to university in Warsaw. Now, they didn't want, the Poles were not interested in making Jews doctors. It was like not, you know, didn't make sense to them. Why should they give Jews this opportunity? However, at certain times in the history that the Jews had in Poland, the Polish government agreed to allow a certain number of Jews study medicine, betnai, on the condition that when they finished, they go back to the dorf from which they came. A dorf is someplace you don't want to go to. That's what a dorf is. So, so there was a doctor in Uman because there was a Jewish young man who was smart and he got there. So, so the two things you have to know about in those days about a doctor who went to medical school. And one was that he was enlightened. Because he read books, he met people, he, uh, people thought about things that they didn't think about in the dorf. The second thing that you know about the doctor is that he wasn't religious. It wasn't an option. It wasn't like today in America. If they, if they give you a, a test and schedule it for Shabbos, you claim that your civil liberties have been impinged upon. This did not happen in Poland. If you had a test on Shabbos, you had to take it. And if you had to go to a hospital where there was no chance of getting kosher food, you had to go. There wasn't any other opportunity. So when you said doctor in those days, not only those days, I remember in America, the generation before my generation, it was very hard to find a religious doctor. It wasn't impossible, but it was very difficult. The so Rav Nachman, when he came to, when he came to Bratzlav, this is a good story. Wait, it gets going soon. Rav Nachman came to Uman, not to Bratzlav. Rav Nachman came to Uman, where he's buried, and he met the doctor. And they arranged the chavrusa, Rav Nachman and the doctor. And every afternoon, Rav Nachman would go to the doctor, and they'd sit on the back porch and play chess together. 
was a chavrusa in chess. It took place every afternoon on the doctor's porch. I guess neither of them was very busy. So they used to play chess. Now the Hasidim, after a while, went to Rav And they said, what are you doing? I mean, how are we going to defend this? They're going to say, what do you maybe do? Does he speculate? Does he meditate? Is he hypnotized? I said, no, he's playing chess with the doctor. I mean, how would we ever be able to sell this to the larger community? They'll all say, chess with the doctor? I mean, that's not what a real Rebbe is supposed to be doing. A real Rebbe is supposed to be Rebbeing. And Rebbeing is not talking to the doctor. So Rav Nachman said, I'll tell you why I'm playing chess with the doctor. The doctor, of course, was, was what we would call perhaps an apicurus. He didn't believe. He was a non-believer. And of course, a non-practitioner of Judaism. And so Rav Nachman told the Hasidim, he said, I'm trying to find out how it's possible for a person to argue that he doesn't have a father or a mother. That was the story. It was Rav Nachman was willing, was willing to look into the psychology of people who are as far away from him as you can imagine. That's Rav Nachman of Brazil. So I don't know if that one story is good enough, but it's a story that I have for you tonight. Now we'll go on. We want to talk about Hanukkah, right? Hanukkah. Now, Hanukkah is a wondrous holiday. Everybody likes it. Everybody's for it. Everybody thinks the message of Hanukkah is a great message. The little guys who are righteous, who are pure, who are good, who are kind, they won. And the big guys, who were bad and oppressive and unpleasant, they lost. Now what could be better than that? Also, if you want to find a model for thinking about things in modern Jewish history, Hanukkah, Hanukkah is the best. Because Eretz Yisrael. After all, who are we? We're the little guys who are good and pure and happy and pleasant, that want to just be nice to everybody else in the world. And all those other people, big and bad and ugly and, and, and have preconceived notions, and besides which, they're all a bunch of anti-Semites anyway. So Hanukkah, which is the holiday of the little guys beating the big guys, of the pure guys beating the impure guys, that's a great holiday. Everybody likes it. But if we look at Hanukkah very carefully, we look at it with a kind of little magnifying glass, and we try to find out what is the most important thing that happened on Hanukkah. Well, I guess some people might say that it was the miracle. I mean, when you say it was the miracle, you have to, uh, you have to clarify what miracle you're talking about. Let's say the miracle of the oil, right? Somehow there was a little bit of oil and the little bit of oil burned for a long time. Now that's a miracle. It's true. But, I mean, it's not a, such a great miracle. I mean, God has performed miracles in this world that are astounding. God created the world. Kriyat Yamsuf, Matan Torah. These are great events. I can compare that to, to a cruise of oil that had enough oil in it for one day and it burnt for eight days. And then we light these candles so that everybody should know. Know what? How are they going to know? If somebody sees two candles burning in your window or out of your house, and what does he say? He says, it's the second day of Hanukkah. How many days of Hanukkah are there? Eight days. There's nothing about the miracle. I mean, he doesn't get information about the miracle specifically. Just lighting candles. That's all we're doing. And if we were celebrating lighting the candles in the Beit HaMikdash, how many candles were there in the menorah in the Beit HaMikdash? Seven. And how, how many of them did you light 
on the first night of Hanukkah. All of them. And the second night of Hanukkah, also all of them. So you say, if it's true that that's what we're celebrating, we're not doing it so well. Why, why don't we just light seven candles every night of Hanukkah? And then maybe the people will get the idea. What, what's so important anyway about knowing what night of Hanukkah it is, even though Beit Shammai and Beit both agree that it's important to know, like, uh, either we do 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, or we do 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. We don't do that. We only do 1, 2, 3. But, okay, so now everybody in the world knows that tonight is the second night of Hanukkah. Now, what's important about that? Pray. I mean, what's the, what's the big deal? I don't care how many nights it is. I just want to stress the fact that the, the oil burnt every night, seven candles every night, until they got a replacement oil supply, which took them eight days. So the, the message is a little bit confused here. Now Rav Nachman of Bratislav looks at this matter, and he decides, he decides that the main thing that happened on Hanukkah is that the Jews purified Beit Hamidash. Now we know that that's true. We know it from Al Hadisim. We know it every time we bench. We know it every time we daven. That the that the Beit Hamidash, right, was purified. It was set up again. It was going to be the place in which. God could be served. However, however, that's what Rav Nachman thought. But we've got to listen to how Rav Nachman explained it to us. He had a special way of explaining this point to us. So we'll start, if you look at the sheet, we will start. Rav Nachman uses the word an aspect. It means like, it means like, this word reminds us of this idea, right? A word, it's not exactly a dictionary entry, but it's like a, a way of reminding yourself. Now let's, let's listen to what it says. Ki inyan Chanukah da, ki kol echad v'achad, lefi ma shezochel ifol bakashato biyom ha-kippurim. He said, Chanukah is yom ha-kippurim. Now we all know that the Arizal said, what's Yom Kippurim? Yom Kippurim. Right, Purim is somehow connected to Yom HaKippurim. But Rav Nachman says something original. He said, not Purim, but Chanukah. Chanukah is connected. The Hainu Bakashat Slachna. Now everybody knows that on Yom HaKippurim we say that Pasuk imitating Moshe Rabbeinu Slachna Lavon HaAmazeh Kegodal Rachamecha Slachna That's what we say Kain Yesh Lo Chanukah And that's what creates Chanukah So we don't know yet what Rav Nachman is talking about Don't let that make you nervous That's how it is you have to go until you understand it. And then you go over it again. But here, we're going to go. Ki al yedei slachna nasa Hanukkah. So there's Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman, like he says, if you didn't hear me the first time, I'll say it again. I'll say it again, that the, that the notion of slachna, which you think has something to do with Yom HaKippurim, is really... The Hanukkah message. How so? Hanukkah comes from Slachna. Now, I hope he's going to explain himself a little bit. It's getting a little annoying. He keeps saying the same thing, right? Slachna, Hanukkah, Yom Kippurim, they're all connected to each other. How? Now listen. The end of the second line. Ki Moshe Rabbeinu Bikesh Slachna Lavon Ha'am Hazeh Al Chayta Meraglim. So we just remember Chayta Meraglim. What was the Chayta Meraglim? 
What was the chait of Maraglim? That they didn't want to go to Eretz Yisrael. They didn't want to go to Eretz Yisrael. And they were kind of successful. Not really, but they were kind of successful because the, the going to Eretz Yisrael was delayed 38 years until they had spent 40 years in the, in the desert. That's the Chet HaMeraglim. Valyadei Chet HaMeraglim and it was because of the Chet HaMeraglim Garmu Churban Beit HaMikdash. How so? The Chet HaMeraglim was in the desert. The Beit HaMikdash was not built till 400 years later. So what is, it, what is he talking about? He, Rab Nachman, what is he talking about? So he says, Kemosh Abru Avotenu Zichrona Livracha There's a Gemara, he quotes a Gemara right out of like outer space and he says Sha'ashem Yitbarach Amar Lahem The HaKadosh Baruch said to the Meraglim and all the Jews who were with the Meraglim Atem Bechitem Bechiyah Shalchinam You cried for no reason at all you cried for no reason. What did they cry about? They cried that they were afraid to go to Eretz Israel. That there were big people there. There were strong fortified cities there. There were armies there. HaKadosh Baruch said, you cried for no reason at all. Because after all, HaKadosh Baruch said, I will take you to Eretz Israel. I will guarantee safe passage. So what are you crying about? He says, Ani ekbalachem so the punishment that Bnei Yisrael had for crying, right? You cried for nothing, which in Hasidic parlance means you actually created national crying. You created this idea that the nation cries. Having created it, it's almost as though heaven had no choice, almost, that heaven had no choice but to create a day of crying. And when was that? When would that be? Oto Halayla, this is the Gemara, that night was the night of Tisha B'Avaya. So that the day that was created as a day of crying to reflect what B'nai Yisrael did in the desert, that day is called Tisha B'Av. It's a date, but it's also a word. It's also a name. It's also an idea, Tisha B'Av. Shebo Nechrav HaBeit HaMikdash. That on that day, on Tisha B'Av, the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. Because in order to have a national day of crying, you had to have a very powerful calamity. Because most things that happen in the world affect a number of people, a family, a community, a town. But in order to get everybody in the world, every Jew in the world to cry, you have to have a calamity of unbelievable proportion. And that calamity is called Churban Beit HaMikdash. O Moshe Rabbeinu Bikesha And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu said when he turned up to heaven and he said, Slachna, forgive them. He wasn't talking about a particular transgression or particular people or the Miraglim or the people. He's talking about the generations. The generations Moshe Rabbeinu realized needed a tremendous act of forgiveness by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, eh, so that they wouldn't be Tisha B'Av, so that there wouldn't be a national day of crying. And that's what HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, Tzalachna, Ki Bazeh HaChet, V'habegam Tluyim Kol Havonot. Because everything comes from Tisha B'Av, everything comes from the rejection. Because what is the Miraglim? What's the chait of the Miraglim? It's the rejection of a divine promise. What's a chait? What does it mean to, to sin? It means to reject 
a directive. God says, do it, and you say, don't do it. Who, who was the first community who rejected the divine di directive? The first community was the community of the Jews in the Midbar, in the desert, who rejected going to Eretz Yisrael. So he says, this sin and this blemish in the nation, the fabric of the nation, every sin is this sin. And of course, Am Yisrael had it in them not to listen, not to accept, not to follow the directives of HaKadosh. It was in there someplace. And because of that, the Beit HaMikdash was finally uh, destroyed. I want to just read one more paragraph. And then we'll try to summarize. Bizman she Beit HaMikdash haya kayam, hayinu nekiyim not imagine that. As long as the Beit HaMikdash existed as a building, it was built, it was there, standing there, we did not have any we didn't transgress how is that possible this is, there's a pasuk in Yeshayahu that says Tzedek Yalimba Peresh Rashi now this is the Rashi Rashi is like is like the original this is what it really means what Rashi says and he says Ki tamid shachar, right? they gave the Korban Tamid the Korban Tamid is called Tamid because it was given Tamid all the time, every day, once in the morning and once in the afternoon, two korbanot tamid. He says, "Tamid shel shachar yam mechaper ala birot shel laila." The tamid shel shachar, the tamid was a korban that was given by all of Am Yisrael. They all donated money for this korban, so they all gave it together. And the, the tamid of shachar that was given in the morning took care of all the avonot of the night. And tamid shel bena abay me mechaper al averot averot shel yom ki Yisrael am kadosh Yisrael am kadosh how could Yisrael be am kadosh there was no mechanism to get rid of all the transgressions that they might have accumulated so every morning they became pure again after every afternoon they became pure again so that's what it means to say am kadosh because there were these moments in the day when they were totally free of Averot. Al-Kain anu tzrichim et Beit HaMikdash. We need the Beit HaMikdash because the only way we can exist as a nation is with the Beit HaMikdash. Because the Beit HaMikdash enables us to get through the day as difficult as it is. Beit HaMikdashenu and from the time that the temple was destroyed, we can't get back to that feeling of purity, of wiping away transgression. Because there's no mechanism of kapara, there are no korbanot. Al Yisrael bikesh slachna lavona am azeki ada shebze achet talui churban habayit shehu kolel kolachata im kanal ukishezachalif ol bakashato bizen nase bechinat chanukat habayit. So here, Rav Nachman has created a world. Well, you say, we could say, what do you need the Beit HaMikdash for? And we've done okay without the Beit HaMikdash for the last 2,000 years, uh, more or less. So what, where does the Beit HaMikdash fill, fit in? Where does Rav Nachman Abraslav, who was in a little town in the Ukraine, where it was very cold in the winter, 
and very mushy and slushy in the summer. A man who had very few chassidim and was entirely contained in the mind that he had and his ability to think about things. And so the question came up, what are we missing? What are we missing if we don't have the Beit HaMikdash? Of course, we would like to be able to do the mitzvot, to do what the Torah says, and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. But in fact, uh, you know, we're all right. We do what we do. We do the mitzvot that we can do. We go to the Kotel from time to time, which is a nice thing to do. And we kind of uh, relate that way to the Beit HaMikdash. But where's the emptiness? What is it that not having the Beit HaMikdash, where is the ache in ourselves? And that's what Rav Nachman was interested in. He says, what's missing? What is it that we don't have? So he said, what we don't have is the title of an Am Kadosh. We don't have that. Because you could only have that with the Beit HaMikdash. It's the Beit HaMikdash that enables you to be an Am Kadosh, a holy and sacred people. Now it's true that we have tried over the years to create for ourselves frameworks that might actually put us into this category of Am Kadosh, but Rav Nachman, he would have none of it. With the Beit HaMikdash, there's a chance. Because an Am Kadosh has to be pure. It's not enough that there's a Yom Kippur that takes place once a year, but there has to be a Yom Kippur that takes place every day, twice a day. And that's what the Korban Tamid in the Beit HaMikdash, in the Beit HaMikdash does. So, what is what about the Hashmonaim? What about the Makabim? What did, what was the great event of Hanukkah according to Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlam? What happened on Hanukkah that did not happen at any other time in Jewish history? According to Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlam, the Hashmonaim, of course they were also Kohanim, but they realized, they realized that the real battle that they were waging was not about political independence or religious freedom or the freedom of ideas. It wasn't really about any of that. Nor was it really about Talmud Torah and doing certain mitzvot. Because in the last 2,000 years we've proven, Am Yisrael has proven, that it's able to maneuver itself. Okay, it's not so good here, so we'll go over there. It's not so good the way it was, so we'll change it a little bit and make it different. Even, even the Hanukkah menorah, right? The Hanukkah menorah, which we light in Yerushalayim generally outside the house because that's the way the Gemara wanted us to do it. But we also know that over the years it became impossible. It was impossible for the Jews to do the mitzvah the way it was originally uh, uh, considered. And so they did it differently. They did it in the house, on the table, later on in a window. I mean, it's, you can accommodate. You can accommodate yourself to a certain kind of oppression and maintain your values and your standards. And that's what Am Yisrael has learned to do in the past 2,000 years. But Rav Nachman of Braslov says, that doesn't make you a holy people. A holy people is the people who have no transgression, who have done tshuva daily for whatever they may have done, who have this mechanism called the korban tamid, which enables them to see themselves as part of the Am Kadosh, right? This wondrous nation which is distinct from all the others. And this happened, this idea that the Churban Beit HaMikdash is what brings up the well of tears in the Jewish people because we understand 
that without the Beit HaMikdash we're not what we might have been, what we could have been, what we should have been, what it's incumbent upon us to be. Without the Beit HaMikdash we're none of that, according to according to Rav Nachman of Rasla. And therefore, Rav Nachman says the Chashmonaim realized that. And what they did was, they said, we're not fighting for political freedom. We could run away and hide and go someplace else. We could move to Teaneck or to Borough Park or to London, wherever people move to. We could also do that, the Chashmonaim said. But the issue that Am Yisrael confronted, according to Rav Nachman of Bratzav, was the issue of the Am Kadosh. It will be a sacred people without the Beit HaMikdash. So Rav Nachman of Bratzav says, if you're looking for the theme, he says, what happened in Hanukkah? What was going on? Okay, there was a battle that's very good, and they had apparently good generals, that's also very good, and they were able to win the war, that's also very good. Anyone who studied history knows that victories don't last forever, and that situations change. And you only get a temporary respite from winning a war, as anybody who just study a little modern history knows very well. But the idea that there is a community of people who are part of an Am Kadosh, which is part of the Slicha, the forgiveness that HaKadosh Baruch enabled in the world when the Beit HaMikdash was built, that for Rav Nachman is the essence of Hanukkah. So we have to uh, wish ourselves well. We're going on the route of the Chashmona Im, I think, to a certain extent. We have political freedom. We have economic freedom, more or less, except we have to pay income tax. Uh, we're a military power. We're uh, an agricultural power. We have a lot of things that we have done. But we seem to be unable to connect to the notion of Kedusha, of sanctity. So we hope that this Hanukkah will be the beginning of the, or the start of a difference. And that people will be more aware of the fact that they could be, have this notion of sanctity within their midst. And that someday, Rav Nachman's dream about Eretz Yisrael, Beit HaMikdash, will in fact come true. And we're not talking about building a building. We're talking about building a people. A people who see themselves, who see them as sanctified within the demands of the Torah. How's it going, Tyler? Very good, no? Yeah, pretty good. Thank you all good. again for coming. Uh, webyeshiva.org, sign up and register tonight if you're, if you're not with us yet. Thank you again very, very much for sparking with us on this podcast.